0: After Cromwell's death, Puritans made one last significant attempt to assert control over Maryland, and the aftermath of that event, known as Fendel's Rebellion, would put the finishing touches on the socio-political form that Maryland took during the Restoration and beyond. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsolpola a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. In our story, Maryland has had a rough little existence so far. Even its most peaceful years were marred by conflict, and during the wars, its government was violently overthrown, not once, but twice, with massive amounts of chaos and destruction following each revolt. In 1658, Oliver Cromwell had finally stated unequivocally which Maryland government England would accept as legitimate, that of Lord Baltimore, and that put a stop to questions of legitimacy. Maryland's government and society had been forever changed, but the acute conflict should at least stop. And in 1659, Baltimore went to work re-re-rebuilding his colony, and chose as its new governor a man who had stuck by him through the colony's deepest, darkest days, Josias Fendel. Fendel had joined William Eltonhead as leader of the party sent to retrieve colony records, weapons, and ammunition prior to the Battle of the Severn, and he had been one of the prisoners illegally sentenced to death afterwards though of course he was one of the ones reprieved at the last minute. He was an Anglican, but he was close to leading Maryland Catholics like Thomas Gerard, so he seemed to be one of the ever fewer Marylanders who could reliably be expected to govern in a way that adhered to Baltimore's vision for the colony, and to protect rather than undermine his interests there. And just in case he didn't, Baltimore's illegitimate younger brother, Philip Calvert, would act as the colony's secretary and would have veto power over anything that might happen there. So in 1659, Fendel had returned to Maryland as governor, but the first thing that Puritans there had done was arrest him force him to all but eliminate the Oath of Allegiance to Baltimore, and only release him when he signed an oath that they had written, promising not to disturb the Commonwealth. It took him a month to agree to the second part, but he had and he'd been released, and he went about planning for the next meeting of the General Assembly, appointing the sheriffs who needed to be appointed, calling for the elections that needed to take place, and so forth. It's kind of shocking that no one really addressed this as the rebellion that it was, but Baltimore and Fendel acquiesced to their requests and moved on. The fact that they didn't call them on this, but rather let the Puritans win, is actually a good demonstration of just how fragile Maryland was at this point in time. Fendel would have to play a balancing game, and perhaps an impossible one, He would need to advocate for Baltimore's interests as well as he could without prompting action from the colony's Puritans. Puritans were overwhelmingly more powerful and populous within Maryland at this point, and by now they had imprisoned him at least twice and sentenced him to death once. It's more than possible, though not recorded, that he was also exiled once before that during the plundering time the extent to which Fendel could advocate for Baltimore's interests would rely on one thing and one thing alone, and that was how much external support he got. Of course, at the same time in England, Richard Cromwell was being forced to abdicate his position as Lord Protector. Oliver had died just months after restoring Baltimore's proprietorship, and his son had only managed to stay in power for eight months after that. And this raised Puritan hopes yet again. Baltimore was a Catholic, and he was a Catholic who had ultimately thrown his lot in with the Commonwealth. So whatever the new government, it was possible that for one reason or another it would bear some ill will toward him. And this meant that whatever that government ended up being, it could conceivably reverse Cromwell's decision. This time, though, the revolt wouldn't be violent. They would simply push in a political way for the reforms which would allow them to dominate the colony by virtue of their strengthened population within it. And it would be up to Baltimore to oppose them. So Fendel's instructions for the election for the General Assembly called for each county to send four delegates to the House of Burgesses, which should have meant that 24 delegates were sent. But instead, Anne Arundel County sent seven delegates, headed by old Puritan governor William Fuller. This was a flagrant breach of protocol, but Fendel let it happen. And then, when St. Mary's County sent its four delegates, perhaps the only four delegates in the county who could be expected to be on the side of Lord Baltimore, the House of Burgesses immediately contested the election of three of them. One man was defeated in this spat, but he was replaced by another person loyal to Baltimore. So things were already looking hostile. Of the 27 delegates, only four seemed to be loyal to Baltimore, while at least 20 had played an active role in Maryland's old Puritan government which had overthrown his authority. That was essentially to be expected. But what's surprising is that the Governor's Council, which formed the Assembly's upper house, and which consisted of people appointed by either Lord Baltimore or Governor was split about 50-50 between people who supported Baltimore and those who were either neutral or antagonistic toward him. In theory, the way that any of these General Assemblies should have worked, New England accepted, was that the lower house represented the colonists, while the upper house represented the owners of the colony. Whether Lord Proprietor or Joint Stock Company, or in Virginia's case, the King. Then, in theory, whatever the colony did would have to serve or at least respect the interests of both parties. Baltimore's interests really couldn't be served by a split upper house, and the fact that it was split meant that the only real protection for Baltimore's interests fell on Fendel and Philip Calvert. That means the entire onus of advocating the unpopular political position in an already tumultuous colony fell on two individual people, and it was Fendel who had appointed the neutral or antagonistic parties to the upper house. So that's just something to note before we progress in the story. So the first thing on the schedule for the assembly meeting was taxes, Under laws that had been operating since 1647, Baltimore had been financially responsible for all military affairs in the colony, and in exchange, he was owed a duty of 10 shillings on every hogshead of tobacco exported from the province, with a hogshead being a 66-gallon or 250-liter barrel. Obviously, though, that had not gone well for him financially speaking between exorbitant military expenses, Puritans who made a point of not paying the taxes they owed, and conflict leading to years of economic non-productivity, plus how many lawsuits, and all of that on top of the already crippling costs of colonization in the best of times, Baltimore was hurting for money. Badly. So Baltimore wanted to revise the system and, in a way that minimized his future expenses, and he proposed a new plan. He wouldn't be financially responsible for any of the colony's military defense, and in exchange he would take only two shillings of tax on hogsheads of tobacco exported to England, though he would still take the full ten shillings on tobacco exported to non-English countries like the Netherlands. But the House of Burgesses refused the proposal. Instead, they took inspiration from Virginia's recent history and sent their own declaration to the Upper House, demanding that the Upper House acknowledge the Burgesses as a legislative body independent from any other power in Maryland and the highest authority in the colony. This meant that Maryland would become a colony governed exclusively by popular rule, with Baltimore given no say whatsoever. And that, of course, meant that the Puritans would be back in control. Baltimore would keep his official title, but have no input into how the colony governed itself, nor how much money he received in colonists, nor, indeed, the extent to which Catholics would be tolerated there. When they received the proposal, the Upper House asked for clarification of exactly what the Burgesses were asking for here, please make this sound more reasonable than it does." And the Burgesses responded by requesting a conference to be held the next day, and the Upper House agreed. And at the conference, the Burgesses clarified that there was no nuance to be found in their proposal. They wanted no one in the colony to have any power except for them. They would have all the power, and Baltimore would have none, and that was their plan and their intention. The upper house would be dissolved completely, and the Burgesses would be in complete control of the colony, end of story. It was brazen, but I mean look at what they've gotten away with in this episode alone, imprisoning the governor for a month, sending extra delegates to the elected assembly, and nothing had happened, so they could clearly be as brazen as they wanted and the upper house was split 50-50 in its willingness to agree to the plan. Calvert and two other people stood alone in speaking out in favor of Baltimore's interests. Calvert didn't even reject the plan per se, he just said what would need to happen for it to work in his eyes. For this to be an acceptable proposal to him, the governor would need to replace the Speaker of the House as President of the Assembly, so that he would be the person with the power to adjourn or dissolve it. And the Burgesses said no. No compromise, no common ground, just no. Calvert pointed out that this would completely eliminate Baltimore's influence in the colonies, and I suppose it's worth noting that no one laughed and told him on the record that that was the point, He asked to have his reasons for opposing the plan put on the record, and again the response was no. And that no came from Fendel, which is a bit odd. Calvert refused to agree to any of this, asked for permission to leave along with his two allies, and granted it did. His refusal to agree to the proposal meant that legally the conversation should have ended there, but it didn't. After Calvert left, Fendall gave the House of Burgesses his commission and got a new one from them in their name. Like in Virginia, this was an acknowledgment of the Burgesses as being the ultimate authority in the colony, with total control there. The governor owed his power and authority to their blessing rather than that of Lord Baltimore. Maryland would be a direct democracy under Puritan control, severed from any kind of realistic authority from England, just as autonomous as any of the New England colonies, but with no balance of political forces nor protection for Maryland's Catholic and Anglican minority, even though they were the people who had actually founded the colony and offered the Puritans a safe place to live in the first place. And now, Fendel was clearly allied with their movement, as was Thomas Gerard. Both had stayed in the negotiations when Calvert had left. Fendel hadn't dismissed the meeting or the assembly, but instead he had submitted himself to the authority of the Burgesses. And like I said, Fendel was the one responsible for appointing both Gerard and the other council member who stayed while Baltimore had appointed the three people who left in protest. Fendel and his allies agreed so readily to the demands that they quickly came to be seen as leaders of the movement, and in fact it's gone down in history as Fendel's rebellion. And that's odd, because like I said, Fendel had previously been unshakable in his loyalty to Baltimore, and for that matter so had Gerard. The standard interpretation has been that Fendel led this, but the standard interpretation gives virtually no discussion of Fendel's motivation for doing so. Some argued that this was provoked by the tax issue. Some simply feel that he had a political change of heart, or maybe that he saw this as being the best way to stabilize the colony. But most don't really discuss motivations, just the effects of the rebellion. For me, though, The more logical explanation would lie in the same factors that had pushed Governor Stone to behave so weakly before. The Puritans were too powerful, and there was too little backup for anyone opposing them on Baltimore's behalf. At the end of the day, the only repercussions for a governor's decision-making would come from the Puritans. I don't necessarily see how someone could get through the Battle of the Severn, followed by a month's illegal imprisonment, only to turn around, change his mind, and lead a Puritan revolt, but I can easily see how someone would get through the Battle of the Severn, followed by a month's illegal imprisonment, too tired and too intimidated to fight back. And to this point, in the months before the Rebellion, Gerard had gotten into a little bit of legal trouble for saying that Fendel would yield to anything requested by the people of Anne Arundel. So was he a traitor, or was he just a burned out guy who didn't want to fight a battle that he ultimately couldn't see winning? We'll never know the answer, but regardless of why, the Restoration is what brought an end to Maryland's direct democracy. Against Puritan hopes, Charles II did confirm Baltimore's power in the colony, and then he went even further. He ordered Virginia to use its militia to help Baltimore retake control of Maryland if it came to that, and Berkeley agreed to the idea with the kind of enthusiasm you'd expect from him. In 1660, Maryland had 12,000 inhabitants while Virginia had 40 so this wasn't a battle that Maryland Puritans were going to win. Baltimore named Philip Calvert as the new governor of the colony and ordered him to try Fendel for treason and execute him. If it was possible without risking the colony's safety, Baltimore said he would also like to see Fuller executed, along with as many as possible of the other Puritan leaders responsible for the illegal killing of prisoners after the Battle of the Severn he even authorized Calvert to use martial law if necessary. The top priority, though, was Fendel, who should be executed no matter what. But contrary to his orders, Calvert was pretty lenient. He confiscated some estates and banished Fendel, Gerard, Hatch, Fuller, and some others, but he didn't execute anyone. And apart from Fuller's, all of the sentences ended up being remitted after a few years. In the month that this trial took place, a similar rebellion was again led by the Burgesses, and when Calvert charged them with sedition, the courts simply refused to find the Burgesses guilty. Calvert protested and ordered the people who had nullified the laws to be charged with sedition but of course the Burgesses simply found them not guilty too. Then, when Baltimore created a process for how foreigners could become legally recognized residents of Maryland, with almost the same rights as English citizens, the Burgesses simply did whatever they felt like on the issue. And then they pushed yet again for control of the upper house. This time, their proposal was that Nominations for any appointed office would start with a list generated by the Burgesses, with the governor forced to choose from that list. That again would mean that the Burgesses had ultimate control of the types of people put on the governor's council, meaning Puritans, while the governor would have little more than symbolic authority in appointing someone. And the assembly now repealed the 1647 customs duty and replaced them with a flat tax of 12 pounds of tobacco per taxable person per year. In other words, two shillings per taxable person per year. In other words, virtually nothing. And for maintenance of the colony, they gave themselves the power to tax all ships trading on their shores. So again, Governor Philip Calvert's power was tenuous at best, and he was really trying. He established a mint, and he kind of got people to use it. And he passed a Pension Act to take care of the people injured protecting the colony. And he resisted Puritan advances as best he could, but he wasn't able to govern even according to Baltimore's minimum requirements. And that's the ever-moderate Baltimore's minimum requirements. The population boomed, the economy improved, but Baltimore was going to see none of the benefits of this, either financially or in terms of actually having his vision for the colony realized. And it seems like at this point, Baltimore realized the finality of the state of affairs. He wasn't going to have some idealistic experiment in the wilderness, that was dead. He wasn't going to have power over it, and he wasn't going to move there. None of those original aspirations were going to happen, and he wasn't going to recoup his financial losses either. And at this point, we see Baltimore take a turn for the more cynical. He started simply appointing his own family members and their friends to all the lucrative positions in the colony. If there was an easy way for a calvert to make a buck, he didn't hesitate to let them. What Catholics still lived there would be left alone and forget about the rest. And in a lot of ways, Maryland's change, of course, is a good representation of the direction that the broader English-speaking world would take during the Restoration. And next week, that's exactly what we're going to look at. And before we go, I want to thank my first Patreon subscriber, Joe Denise, and remind you that you can find transcripts and resources on the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net. And that if you want to support this podcast, I have both Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee options, which I'll link in the description. And as always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next episode.